We're going to look through the Psalms over the course of the summer for several weeks. Last week we looked at Psalm 42. It's widely believed and accepted that Psalm 42 and 43 were originally a singular psalm. This is evidenced on the earliest manuscripts that are available to man. There is a single psalm that has been recorded. Additionally, if you'll notice in your Bibles at Psalm 43, there is no title given. There is no author mentioned, and it's likely because it was originally included as a part of Psalm 42. You also see in Psalm 42 and 43 a common refrain in 42.5, 42.11, and in our passage today in 43.5, and there's also repetition in 42.9 and 43.2. So it's very likely that translators, for liturgical reasons, decided to separate these two psalms doesn't mean it is, that it isn't reliable or that there's something wrong with them. There are no chapter and verse within any of the manuscripts that have been put in by man, and so man makes a decision based on their textual analysis as best they can as to where these verses and chapter headings should be. So all of that to say, this is a continuation of what we looked at last week in Psalm 42. So while the details of this particular psalm are not accurately known, we don't know the time in Israel's history where it was written, what we do know probably from the information in the psalm, by the title given in 42, it was written by the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah that has written this psalm is separated from Jerusalem and therefore feels very separated from God. As a son of Korah, he was a part of the tribe of the Levites who were responsible for worship in the temple, not only for the daily worship, but also for the festivals, the annual festivals that would take place throughout the year in the city of Jerusalem. So it's clear from Psalm 42 that this involvement for the son of Korah is only a memory. He looks back and longs for that experience that he used to have when he was in Jerusalem, in the temple, celebrating with the throngs of people the greatness and the glory of God. And so in Psalm 42, he expresses an intense desire for God's presence. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you. The psalmist had this intense desire to be back in Jerusalem where he would experience the closeness of God. And because of this physical separation and because of this spiritual feeling of separation, he feels separated from God, even neglected by God. He's being taunted by his enemies as he thinks back and remembers these celebrations within the temple with all of the people. He longs for this experience and he feels very, very far from God. He is experiencing a troubled heart, which is very likely the same experience that you and I have when we are up against the difficulties of life, when we don't know how we're going to make it another day, we don't know where to turn or what to do. We sometimes feel very separated from God because of the physical circumstance that we find ourselves in. So just as for the psalmist, it is true for us today, in difficult times, there is going to be a challenge to our faith. There's going to be tension between what we believe intellectually in our minds with our own present experience. What do I say I believe about God? But what am I experiencing from God when I am in the midst of the worst that life has to offer? So there is this tension that pulls at our faith, causing us to either turn to God, 
to love Him, to bow before Him, to submit to Him, or we turn away from God, angry, questioning, wondering, this isn't right, this isn't fair, God, what are you doing? I didn't deserve this. And so the psalmist expresses these battles, first of all, as a battle of hopelessness against our memory. We talked about this last time. As you think back about the past faithfulness of God, how is that to prepare us for the difficulty that we face in the present? If God was faithful in the past, can we not expect Him to be faithful in the present and also in the future? Well, for the psalmist, and sometimes for us when we're in the midst of a great difficulty or a great hardship, our memory fails us of the faithfulness of God, and we can ask ourselves the question, God, where are you? What are you doing? When is this ever going to end? I don't like this. I want this to go away. So the past faithfulness of God can seem like a distant memory, and our current crises can cause us to question God's faithfulness in the present. That's a part of the battle that we have in our faith. But we know that God is always faithful, isn't He? Is God ever not faithful? Can God ever be unfaithful to His people? Absolutely not. So we have this battle between our experience and the hopelessness that it might bring and our memory of the past faithfulness of God. Now the second battle that we looked at in Psalm 42 is circumstance against God's goodness. When you are being treated unfairly, when you are being persecuted unjustly, when you have done nothing to your knowledge to deserve whatever is coming your way, that reality can cause us to question the goodness of God. Because after all, isn't God a God of love? And if you listen to too much TV preaching, you'll be convinced that God is there for you to give to you the best life that you can ever imagine, to give you all the world has to offer, to make you happy beyond your wildest dreams, and to spare you from any hardship or heartache in your life. You know, I say, I say that and the song comes to mind, I beg your pardon, I never promised you a rose garden. Isn't that right? God never made a promise to us as His children that we would be spared from the hardship and the difficulty in life. In fact, Jesus even told His disciples that you will be hated by the world and you will be persecuted by the world for My name's sake. And so when we face hardship and difficulty and unwanted circumstance, it can cause us to question the goodness of God. But we know that God is good all the time. And our present circumstance will never change. It will never affect the truth about the goodness of God. God is always at work. And He is always at work on our behalf to bring about our good even in the midst of great difficulty and great hardship. He sometimes allows difficulties to enter into our lives to produce His perfect plan in our life, which ultimately is that you and I would be conformed to the image of Christ. The third big battle that the psalmist talks about in Psalm 42, is there is a battle against our feelings 
and our perception of our present reality. The psalmist feels forgotten. He feels abandoned. He's suffering oppression at the hands of sinful men. Yet in reality, he knows that God is his rock. God is my refuge. He is my fortress. He is my anchor. But my experience is that God has abandoned me, that he has separated himself from me, Yet he knows in his heart of hearts, just as we know in our heart of hearts, that God is always with us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. But in the depth of pain, in the midst of suffering and difficulty, it can be incredibly difficult for us to win that battle between what we feel and what we know to be true about God. Now this leads us to Psalm 43. So look with me at Psalm 43. Very, very short. A continuation of Psalm 42. And here's what God's Word says to us today. Verse 1. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do, I, why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Oh, send out your light and bring your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre I shall praise you, O oh God, my God. Why are you in despair? O my soul, and why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. Now it could be argued that Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 singularly are a prayer, but most specifically Psalm 43 verbalizes the request that the psalmist is going to make as a continuation of what we looked at in Psalm 42. So as we continue in the outline, we're beginning with Roman numeral 4, which follows Roman numeral 3 from last week's outline. Roman numeral 4 is the request. And in this Psalm 43, there are four requests. The first request is a prayer for justice. Verse 1, Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful an unjust man. This simple request is expressed in this way. The psalmist believes that he is innocent and he is asking God to render a verdict in his spiritual court. The word vindicate means to judge. So what the psalmist is doing is he is inviting God to judge him. Pause real quick. By the way, when you're going through a difficult circumstance in your life, Do you and I pray that God would judge us as we deal with the reality of our circumstance? You know, I don't think I've ever asked that before. I've just been convinced that it's unwarranted, that it's unfair, that surely, God, you meant for this to fall on someone else, not me. But the psalmist prays that God would judge him, so he must feel very strongly in his innocence and in his unjust treatment. The phrase, to plead my case, gives the impression that he wants God to provide his defense. And since God is omniscient, God knows best how to defend his innocence in God's court. The phrase, against an ungodly nation, 
First of all, it might imply that this is a part of Israel's exile at some point in their history, but no one can really say for sure. But that phrase implies that he wants God to prosecute his enemies. And since God is omniscient, he knows how wrong and how at fault his enemies really are. So he is seeking deliverance from these deceitful and unjust man. And since God alone is capable of providing such deliverance, he is calling upon the sovereign work of God to rescue him from his circumstance. Now, I've been in search situations in my life where I fully believed that God and God alone could rescue me from the experience that I was in the midst of. And I want to be very honest with you. It's a feeling that I do not like. After all, I like to be in control, if at all possible. I like to be able to put together a plan of solution that gets me out of my jam and leads me into a safe and a prosperous place. But you know what I've come to realize in my life? That probably in the neighborhood of 90% of what I experience, I have absolutely zero control over. None. So more times than not, we find ourselves in a position where we are depending upon the sovereign work of God to do what only He can do. So in short... The psalmist wants God to singularly handle the entirety of his legal proceeding to be the judge, the jury, the prosecutor, the defender, and the executioner, if you will. Don't we feel that way when we're up against it? When we know that we're at the end of ourselves, we have no place to look but up, and we simply cry out and say, God, do what only you can do. So this prayer for justice expresses the confidence the psalmist has not only in his own innocence, but also in God's righteous judgment and in his own eventual deliverance. It's a hard thing to endure when we are convinced that we are suffering unjustly, isn't it? We can come up with a fairly long list of people in our sphere of influence or um, acquaintance that we could say certainly they deserve that more than I do. After all, I'm trying, I'm doing, I'm giving, I'm serving, I'm praying, I'm reading. Somebody else deserves this more than I do. There have been times in my life where I felt like I was being unjustly persecuted and I was angry. I became bitter and resentful. I wanted for God to throw down hellfire and brimstone and just smite my enemies that I perceived to be my enemies. But you know what? We have to learn that God has a plan, God has a time, and God has a way, and we must learn to rest in the sovereignty of God. Come across this passage in 1 Peter, and this is... Peter addressing those who were in servitude to other people who were being treated unjustly. And here's what he says, 1 Peter 2.20, For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? So in other words, if you do wrong and you know you've done wrong and you've got to suffer for your wrong, you say, well, I've done wrong and I've got to pay the price for that, right? But if, when you do
do what is right and suffer for it patiently and suffer for it you patiently endure it this finds favor with God. So the question is this, when we're suffering unjustly, how patiently do we endure it? Do you get a thumbs down buzzer at the sound of your circumstance? You're not doing very good. You're not being very patient. You don't have much faith. You are not submitting. You are not learning. You are not giving this to me. You are not trusting. You are hoping to change this on your own. And my dear little child, you can't. So we have to learn how to, en- how to endure patiently because this finds favor with God. Do you see that? How we handle our unjust suffering has the potential to find favor with God. Isn't that what we want? Don't we want to please Him in every way? Don't we want for our hardships to accomplish His intended purpose in our life? Make no mistake about it, we are going to suffer unjustly in this world because the world lives under the curse of sin and you are going to suffer by no fault of your own and you're going to say, I don't know why this is happening and this certainly doesn't seem fair to me. Well, that's just the way it is sometimes. We're going to suffer unjustly because we're Christians and some are going to seek us out and desire to persecute us because we are Christians. And one of the hardest things there is to do, at least in my opinion, is this. It's to wait on the hand of God to complete His purpose in me. Do you like to wait? No, I don't like to wait. I mean, sometimes a microwave oven just is too slow. What about the line at Walmart or the traffic on 76 or whatever else it might be? The hardest thing to do is to wait on the hand of God to complete His purpose in us. So we must remember this. God is not unaware of our circumstance He has a plan and a purpose that we usually cannot see at the time. So in God's providential sense of humor and in his inspired instruction to us, we read these words, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I can't think of a single time in my life when I have faced a trial or a hardship or a difficulty and I said, woohoo, this is great because God's going to do some work in me. Never have I said that. Have you? We don't like it, it makes us uncomfortable. It makes us wonder what's going to happen. We have no control. All we can do is sit back, trust in the sovereign God to work out His plan in us in a way that will accomplish His purpose through us. And so when hardship, suffering, difficulty strikes, we are to consider it with joy because it means that God is going to do something in you. By the way, considering it joy is not a natural response, it's a spiritual response. And at least in my experience, most of the time, the joy doesn't come until it's over, 
And I've been able to see what God has done. But that's just not the way it's supposed to be. So we have to learn to train ourselves to remember that God is in the midst of the circumstance. He knows about it. He's allowed it. And He wants to do something in us through it. And so we have to let God accomplish His perfect plan in us. Number two, the psalmist prays for action. A prayer for action. Well, now you're talking. This is what I'm all about. I'm a man of action. I'm a person of action. I want to pray for God's action. Verse 2, For you are the God of my strength. Right? Isn't that right? Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? What he is saying is this. God, you are my strength. I live for you. I walk in you. I do my best to serve you and honor you and please you. Why have you rejected me? Why are you allowing me to suffer at the hands of these unjust, sinful men? I'm asking that you will do something that will change my circumstance. It expresses the depth of despair that the psalmist feels in his circumstance. He acknowledges that God is his strength, and yet he cannot reconcile his current circumstance, the way he feels about what he's going through, and what he knows to be true about God. He feels like God is rejecting him because God is not acting on his behalf now or yet. Have you ever felt that way? I've been going through this for months. I never dreamt it would take this long. I've been going through this for years. I never dreamt it would take this long. God, I'm praying that you would act on my behalf. What the psalmist says here is a much stronger expression than what he said in Psalm 42.9. In Psalm 42.9, he expresses the feeling of being forgotten Here he feels outright rejected by God because of a circumstance and because because he cannot see any change on the horizon. So think about it like this. If you're at a large gathering with a young child and you get separated, the child feels that separation, right? Very traumatic for the child. They typically cry. They want their mom. They want their dad. They go around asking anybody, have you seen my mom? Have you seen my dad, right? How different is it if the parent rejects the child as opposed to this feeling of separation? I can't tell you a worse feeling in the life of a child than to feel like they've been rejected by their own parent. This is how the psalmist feels. The psalmist knows that God is his rock, his strength, and he feels rejected. So he wants God to act on his behalf. His circumstances are incomprehensible to him, and it feels like God is totally absent from his life. And so he's praying that God would act. Sometimes when God isn't acting as quickly as we would like him to do, we can feel like God has left us alone, that God has perhaps even rejected us and is not going to do anything and is going to leave us on our own. But here's what we need to remember. God is good. God is good all the time. God is at work all the time. 
And this is where our faith has to overcome our feelings because God has not rejected us. God has not forsaken us. He's not abandoned us. This is where we learn to rest in the sovereignty of God and in His chosen timetable. Christian comedian Mark Lowry often quotes his favorite Bible verse. Here it is. And it came to pass. That's it. And it came to pass. What that means is that whatever we're going through isn't going to last forever. And so trusting in God is a choice that we must make And it's a choice that does not come naturally. It only comes spiritually. This is a verse I'm sure you all are familiar with. Be still and know that I am God. Think about this picture image of an individual in a small watercraft in a raging storm tossed here to there at any moment feels like he's going to be tossed out of the boat and will surely drown. And that's how life's circumstances can feel to us. And yet, God's Word says to us, be still and know that I am God. Consider the difference between being still and being stirred. Being at rest and being restless. We should pray for God to act. And it should be combined with a confidence that God is at work. And that reality should bring us peace knowing that we sit firmly in the hand of God. Nothing is happening that He doesn't know about. Nothing is coming that He has not allowed. And He will be sufficient for whatever it is that we face. Number three, a prayer for guidance. He says in verse 3, O send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. So the psalmist is in a dark place and he desires the light and the truth of God. So the light of God is the experience of the fullness of his redemption. The fullness of his redemption. Here it would relate to the presence of God. You see, when we are redeemed... We are bought back, we are bought back by Christ, brought back to Christ, and we are in an inseparable union with Him, and we experience the ability to enjoy the fullness of the presence of God. So this is what this means here. It's the fullness of His redemption related to experiencing the fullness of God. The truth of God is the expression of God's covenant faithfulness to his children. So here, it would, be, it would be related to a change in his circumstances. So this is the psalmist prayer that God would lead him out of his current circumstance to the place his heart desires so that he can experience the fullness of his redemption and of God's covenant faithfulness. It's back to the holy hill of Jerusalem back to the temple where God dwells, this is where he will experience the fullness of the presence of God and the greatest measure of God's provision for him as he once again leads God's people in worship. 
So the psalmist expresses this in verse 4. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. So the psalmist articulates what we often feel during hardship, and that is this. It is feelings of separation from God's goodness and the hardship and joy-filled closeness to God when the hardship ends. It is almost as if I am incapable of experiencing the fullness of God's presence until I am out of the circumstance that I currently find myself in. Now that's but that is often the way that we feel. And so this becomes a battle between faith and our feelings, between confidence in God and questions regarding His choice of how He completes His plan and His purposes in our lives. You know what? If you and I got to choose what would happen to us to bring about God's plans and purposes, they would not be the same as God's. What we would choose for ourselves would never accomplish God's plans and God's purposes. And so this is where the omniscient God, the all-knowing God, the all-gracious, all-loving God, does what is best for us, and we as His children rest in the knowledge that He is God. Now, Psalm 139 is one of my most favorite psalms, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. In this psalm, the psalmist talks extensively about the omnipotence of God and about the omnipresence of God. And here's a little snapshot of what he articulates in this psalm. Psalm 139, verse 11 and 12. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Now, what David is talking about is very simply this. It is spiritual realities in the face of a literal, physical hardship. When it cannot be any darker to me, you, God, are not deterred, because you are present with me, in the midst of the darkness that surrounds me, and you don't see the darkness that I see. We often talk about the light at the end of the tunnel. Have you ever heard that? How many times have you said that? Well, you know, it's really bad right now, but I know there's light at the end of the tunnel, right? Well, we talk about that, but here's the reality. This psalm talks about light in the tunnel, Because no matter how long that tunnel is, no matter how dark that tunnel feels to us, God is with us, God is with us, and God does not see the darkness. Darkness to us and light are the same to God. He is with us. So the perspective of David in Psalm 139 and the perspective of the son of Korah who wrote Psalm 43 are not contradictions. They are expressions of human emotion and the face of physical, spiritual battle. It is very likely that Psalm 42 and 43 are written in the midst of hardship, and Psalm 139 is probably written on the other side of the hardship, when the lessons have been learned and the spiritual realities have been gained, and David says, what was dark to me was not dark to you at all. 
and you were with me. Even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Isn't that right? No matter where we are, the presence of God is right there with us. So this is a spiritual battle. We have to learn how to fight the spiritual battle in the midst of incredibly difficult life circumstances. I believe the chief lesson in these two psalms is centered around trusting God. And that's why I titled it, In Whom Do You Trust? So we see this lesson expressed, number four in our, in our outline, it is very simply a prayer for faith. Even in the psalmist's darkest place, he expresses this prayer for faith in who God is and in what God is doing, even though he knows who God is and what God is capable of. He still articulates the prayer. He's putting his belief to action as he prays for faith. This is the repeated refrain that we see twice in Psalm 42 and here at the end of Psalm 43 as a conclusion. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. It's almost as if the psalmist is talking to himself in the darkest place that he is. He questions himself, why am I in despair? Why do I feel this way? So he prays for faith. Why are we in despair? It points out to us how unspiritual we are when we are in distress. Why are we so disturbed? Well, it points to us the solution, which is very simply trusting in God. Here's the kicker. Trusting in God is more than just a cliche or a Christian catchphrase. It is central to our belief in who God is and in the security we have in our union with Him. Trusting God is based upon who He is. Trusting in God is based upon who I am in Him. We are the children of God. We are the brothers and sisters of Christ. We are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We are the ones who have been brought near to Him. We have been filled with the Holy Spirit. We have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Nothing can snatch you out of the Father's hand. So trusting in God is rooted in our belief about who He is, and it speaks of the security that we have in our union with Him. little exercise that I learned years and years ago, and you've seen me do this before. If you were to stretch out your arm and make a fist and put it in front of the hardship that you're facing, if you put out another, your other hand and spread your fingers apart, this represents God in your life. Circumstance and God. So when I look at my circumstance through who I know God to be, the circumstance is obscured by my faith in God. If I reverse this and I put the circumstance in the front and I put God behind the circumstance, then my fingers, represented by God, is obscured 
by the fist. Meaning the circumstance affects how I see God, how I trust God, and how secure I feel in my union with Him. This is the same thing that takes place in our circumstances. We will either see God through the circumstance, or we will see our circumstance through God. It makes a big difference. And you and I individually choose which one will be at the front as we deal with the hardships of life. I just put together a list of verses that I think are beneficial for us and being reminded about what trusting in God is like. These are in your outline. I encourage you to go back and reread these. Maybe even underline these in your Bible. <clears throat> Turn the corner of the page down in your Bible. Common verses, most of these. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Psalm 28.7, the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exalts, and with my song, I shall thank Him. Isaiah 26.3 and 4, the steadfast of mine you will keep in perfect peace, because He trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord, in the Lord we have an everlasting rock. Isaiah 41.10 Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Philippians 4.6 and 7 Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Lastly, Romans 15:13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We must remember that God has plans, and we have Him. Having Him is certainly enough. Because if we are really and truly honest with ourselves, there are many, many times in our lives where having Him is all we have. And that's not a bad place to be. Would you pray with me? Father, speak to the depth of our need for You, whatever it is that we face in our life, whatever it is that we're going to face in the future. And Father, I know in my heart that it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So I pray, Father, that in a time of peace, in a time of tranquility in our life, that we would do our very best to fill our lives with the truth about who you are, that we would do all that we know to do to strengthen our understanding of our inseparable union with you so that when the storms of life come, we stand confidently on you as our rock, that we sing joyfully knowing that your righteous right hand will uphold us, knowing that nothing is coming our way that you have not allowed for purposes that we may not ever fully understand. God, I pray that you would teach us how to be still and know that you are God. 
to trust in your sovereign hand that is always at work in us, your hand that desires to work through us, so that we would be a people that would constantly bring you glory and praise and honor because you are worthy. Father, I pray that you would fill us with a sense of your presence and understanding of how close you are. I pray, Father, that our failures, that our sin would be matched against the matchless grace of Jesus so that we would be able to come to you boldly knowing that we can find mercy and grace in our time of need. Father, speak to the hearts of your children. Convict those who may be here today that are not your children and help them to understand their need for you, that they would join the family of God and with all of the angelic beings come to praise you for all eternity. We pray that you would speak through this music, through this song, that you would constantly remind us of the truths that we've heard today so that we would be able to bring you glory in the life that we live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.